years back, our host, Bill Petrie, did a study in Buffalo, New York, about the Star of Bethlehem. This is a very important study and really delves into some important Bible study truths. Differing Things is happy to share this unique Christmas study with you. Now for our host, Bill Petrie. If you want to turn with me to Matthew chapter number two, Matthew chapter number two. Now, for those that listen to our Zoom study during the week and aren't with us tonight, I know this is um, for some of them that are going to be tuning in. This will, will be a totally different way for them to approach Scripture, and uh, you know that's okay. And if I somewhat seem repetitious it's it's for the benefit of somebody that that may not be familiar with some of the things that we're talking about so kind of bear with that okay now in Matthew chapter number two I want to look at the first two verses here reading out of the concordant now with Jesus being born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king lo magi from the east came along into Jerusalem saying Where is he who is brought forth king of the Jews? For we perceived his star in the east, and we came to worship him. And we have these magi who have come from the east, and they're coming into Jerusalem, and they're saying, where is he who is brought forth king of the Jews? That's an interesting title right in of itself. And we're going to have a lot to say on that title over the next few weeks. But suffice it to say, he's king of the Jews. And this is understood right at his birth. But they go on and they ask a question and they say, for we perceived, and the concordant correctly has his, is a capital H here, meaning a reference to to Christ himself, for we perceived his star in the east, and we came to worship him. Now, how many people have seen some kind of a Christmas show where they'll have the star and everybody coming and viewing it and looking at it and observing it? And, you know, that star is a a wonderful thing, and you'll always have it settling over this kind of shabby-looking manger, right? And Everybody comes to it, and and they're there, and the star guides them. But how many times have we read this passage? And we we when we read it, we don't really pay attention to the words specifically. Mm-hmm. Now it's interesting too because the King James also has his star. His star, yes. His star. The star is referred to as his star. Now, do you ever think about that? Why is it referred to as his star? Uh, As opposed to a star, Dennis? Weren't they supposed to see a star that was pronouncing or announcing a king to be born at that time? And there was supposed to be something in the sky. Well, they they 
are coming, and that's actually what they're following is that star. But it's interesting because there's there's no Old Testament prophecy per se that would say a star would come out when he was born, okay. at least not to my knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's definitely and very clearly referred to as his star. Now look down into verse 9. Verse 9 of Matthew 2. Now those who hear the king went, and lo, the star which they perceived in the east preceded them till coming. It was standing over where the little boy was, was. Now stop and think about this for a second. His star, Jesus's star, it goes away for a little while, and then it comes back and they follow it again. Now look at verse 7, for instance, and you'll see this. Then Herod, covertly calling the Magi, ascertains exactly from when from them the time of the star's appearing. So they have this idea of when this star appears. And they're the star precedes them and it stands over that manger. I, I want you to stop and think about this for a second. What is a star? It's a flaming ball of flaming gases. A ball of flaming gases, right? We think of the sun, right? Yes. The sun is a star. Now, what would happen... If we had a star or the sun where we could take the sun and say, okay, the sun is going to actually stand right above an object on the earth. It would incinerate it. It would incinerate it, right? Would we even be able to tell what object it was standing over? No. So there's something unique about this star, isn't there? Yes. And... I think it's it's a fascinating thing when you look at it and, and you begin to look at this. It's referenced as Jesus' star, and it's guiding the Magi to where he is. And it's doing it in such a way that it can pinpoint an actual building where Jesus is. Now, think about that. If I took any of the stars that we can think of in the universe and put it above any building where it would pinpoint that building, it would incinerate the entire planet, Mm -hmm. let alone you'd never be able to tell what building it was trying to pinpoint. Yet this star has that capability, right? In verse 7, for instance, we know that, that Herod can ascertain when the star first appeared. In verse 16, if you go there, then Herod, perceiving that he was scoffed at by the Magi, was very furious. And dispatching, he massacred all the boys in Bethlehem and in all its boundaries from two years and below, according to the time which he ascertains exactly from the Magi. In other words, he had to ascertain when the star had appeared 
but the star's not there anymore. So he has to butcher people that are two years of age and younger. He's ascertaining it from when the star first appeared. So the idea is that this star came, pinpointed a place, and then was gone. That's it's kind of a unique thing. In verse 11, which we want to read here, and coming into the house, this would be the Magi, they perceived the little boy with Mary, his mother, and falling, they worship him. And opening their treasures, they bring him approach presents, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Now notice here, this star can go near a physical structure without consuming it. Not only near a physical structure without consuming it, it can pinpoint a particular building, in this case, a house. And it does so in such a way where there's no doubt where the Magi intend to go. I'm going to submit, and we're going to look at some verses to show this. And kind of bear with me because I'm going to get to a dispensational element is towards the end of this. So you can really see this. I'm going to submit that what was being viewed this night or at this time frame was the glory of God himself. And it was an indication that God is doing something, that God is is functioning. God is present in the affairs of humanity, performing something. If you go with me to Exodus chapter 40. Exodus 40? Exodus 40. And if somebody could read verses 34 through 35, that would be wonderful. Exodus 40, verses 34 through 35. I got that, Bill. Okay, thanks, Rick. Then a cloud covered the tent of the congregation, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter into the tent of the congregation, because the cloud abode thereon, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Okay, so we here's a passage where the glory of, of Yahweh fills the tabernacle, and they can see the very glory filling that tabernacle. We call that God's Shekinah glory. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Verse 38, if you could read that also, Rick. The cloud of the Lord was upon the tabernacle by day, and fire was on it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Now, it's interesting. He refers to a cloud upon it, right? during the day, and fire at night. Mm-hmm. This was to indicate God's presence within the nation. If you go to chapter 13 of Exodus, Exodus 13, and in Exodus 13, 
verses 21 and 22. If somebody would like to take that, that would be good. I can get that, Bill. Okay, thank you. <clears throat> and Yahweh was going before them by day in a column of cloud to guide them along the way, and by night in a column of fire to give light for them to go by day and night. The column of cloud by day and the column of fire by night did not remove from the presence of the people. Okay, so here we have this idea that God's glory, that glory, that presence, acts acted as a guide for the nation of Israel as, as they were coming out of Egypt. It's guiding them to, to where it is that God wants to take them. In chapter 3, of Exodus, we come across a really interesting um, couple of verses there. This was this was something I, uh, as a kid, always found fascinating. After watching the Ten Commandments, it it uh, kind of piqued my interest. Little did I know how inaccurate at the time Ten Commandments was as a movie, <laughs> but. But I, th I thought this scene was pretty cool. Exodus chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. And we all know the account of the burning bush, right? Now, what's happening here? This bush is on fire, right? But is the bush a bush? Yes. Is it, does it become a, a Kindle, Kindle wood? <laughs> no. It's still a bush, right? And and it sparks Moses's interest. He calls it in in the King James here. It's a great sight, right? I would think it would be a great sight to see a bush on fire and nothing happening to the bush. That would be a remarkable sight. Not only that, but Moses begins to talk with God, right? And God talks to Moses out of that burning bush. Does he not? Yes. And, and we have this amazing account where that that's glory of the Lord in Exodus chapter 13 guided the nation. And in Exodus 3, it can come upon a bush and not consume it, right? And from chapter 40 of Exodus, we can see that God's presence is operative within the nation. I'm going to submit in Matthew 2, the same sort of an idea is taking place with this star. We know that the glory of the Lord appears on the night of Christ's birth. We know this from the Luke account. 
So if you want to go with me to Luke chapter 2, Luke chapter 2, and in Luke 2, let's look at verses 8 and 9. Luke 2, verses 8 and 9. And shepherds were in the same district in the field fold and maintaining watches at night over their flock. And lo, a messenger of the Lord stood by them, and the glory of God shines about them, around them. That's sort of an idea, shines about them. And they were afraid with a great fear. Notice Luke says, the glory of God shines about them. The glory of God appeared that night of Jesus' birth. Back in Matthew, Matthew, In chapter 2, we read that the Magi came from the east into Jerusalem because they had seen his star. Mm. Now, the idea here is the star isn't present by the time they get to Jerusalem, and they need help to ascertain where it has went. And they get a report from Herod. You know, Herod actually... Uh, sends for some people, or they tell him that he was to be born in Bethlehem, verse 6 of Matthew 2. Then the star appears again, which leads the Magi to the house where Mary is. I'm going to submit when the Magi began their journey was the night that is recorded for us in Luke. Because we know the Magi don't arrive at, on the night of Jesus' birth, do they? No. It's some two years after the fact. So, so what you have here is that, that this star I'm going to submit is nothing more as if that's a bad thing. It is the glory of God itself, mm-hmm. I believe. It shows that God is present. He's doing something on planet Earth. He's actively engaged in planet Earth, and in particular within the nation of Israel. And in particular, with a certain individual on planet Earth named Jesus Christ. The star is guiding them. And the star can appear above objects without consuming them. All things we've seen in the Old Testament that were that God's glory was capable of doing. Now, in Matthew 1, verse 21, we read something that's very interesting as well. Now she shall be bringing forth a son, 
and you shall be calling his name Jesus, for he shall be saving his people from their sins. This verse kind of reminds me a little bit of the one in John. He came unto his own, right? The idea is he can't, he shall be saving his people from their sins. This is why Jesus came. The question most people don't ask is who's the his people? Unfortunately, most of Christendom just assumes that it's all of humanity that's being referenced there. But again, I alluded to John, and John 1.11 says, says this, to his own he came. And those who are his own accepted him not. So we have to understand here that his people, his own, are not believers in this passage. His own here is the nation of Israel. He's born as an Israelite, is he not? He's of the lineage of David. He can trace his lineage. We have the genealogies. We have the genealogies in Matthew and in Luke that show us how we can trace that lineage. This is important for those who are of the Jewish religion. Christ had a ministry to Israel during his earthly life on the planet. In Matthew 15, <clears throat> Matthew 15, if somebody would like to read verse 24, Matthew 15, 24. <clears throat> but he answered and said, I am not sent, but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Hmm. Okay, so who was Jesus sent to? The lost sheep. Of who? Israel. Israel. He sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I think this is something that, again, most of Christendom just glosses over. His earthly ministry, he came to save his people. Who's the his people? Israel. Israel. Oh. Right? And he says he's, he's in the concordant, I was not commissioned except for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He's only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Go with me to Romans chapter 15 for a second. Romans 15 and verse 8. <clears throat> Romans 15, verse 8, if somebody could read that. For I am saying that Christ has become the servant of the circumcision 
for the sake of the truth of God, to confirm the patriarchal promises. Okay, so Paul here is telling us one of the reasons Christ came. Hey, Bill? Who was he? Bill? Yes? Can I read that in the King James? Yes, you can. Okay. Now I say that Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made to the fathers. Mm -hmm. Okay. See the difference? The idea? I'm sorry, what were you going to say, Rick? See the difference? Yeah. The two, the two versions? Yeah, the King James has the tense wrong. Really? Yeah. So Jesus <laughs> is, in his being, a minister of the circumcision? Read what it says. Here's what it says. For I am saying that Christ has become okay. All right. the servant of the circumcision. Okay. I thought I heard is becoming. Okay. Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the whole idea here is that Christ was a servant to who in his earthly life? The circumcision. Which is who? Israel. Israel, not the Gentiles, right? His his death, his death was presented by the twelve apostles for the sins of Israel. They didn't view it as global in scope. They viewed it as national in scope. Go with me for a second to Acts five. Just so hey, Bill, hey, Bill. Yes. I think I think I'll inject one other thing on that. Okay. The, the concordant literally reads has become the servant of circumcision. Right. The definite article is not there. That's correct. And I think it actually has to do with the covenant that was given to Israel. I agree. I think it does. I think, and I didn't want to get into that discussion because I think that's a whole nother study in of itself. But I, I agree, it does have to deal with Israel's covenant. Thank you, Ted. If you want to turn to Acts 5, let's look at verse 29. Acts 5, verses 29 down through 31. You get that? <laughs> sure, if, if you'd like to, Dennis. Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you, you slew and hanged on a tree. Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Now notice who who is he giving repentance and forgiveness of sins to here? Israel. Israel. The twelve apostles don't view this as something that goes beyond Israel. To them, his death was presented as something for Israel. And in fact, in chapter two, they're accused of his murder. And it's a shameful thing. But, <clears throat> but, 
I want to show you something here that will tie all this in. We're going to go to the Mount of Transfiguration first. Keep a hand in Acts, Acts 26. And with another with the other hand, take Matthew 17. <laughs> in Matthew 17. You said 26. Well, oh, Matthew. Yep. Acts 26. Okay. Matthew 17. Gotcha. Start at Matthew 17, verse 1. And after six days, Jesus is taking aside Peter and James and John, his brother, and is bringing them up into a high mountain privately and was transformed in front of them. And his face shines as the sun, yet his garments became white as the light. Now, I think this is interesting. His face shines as what? The sun. The sun. Now, what is the sun? A star. A star. Do you think Jesus is, is right here exhibiting a little bit of the glory he's going to be having? Yes. I think he is. Right? And his face is shining as the sun. Now, again, Matthew 17 is something that's pertinent to Israel. Go with me to Acts 26. Now, Paul's going to talk about something. And in Acts 26, <clears throat> verse 13. On the road, I perceived, O king, a light from heaven above the brightness of the sun shining about me and those going together with me. Now, what kind of light did Paul see? Light from heaven. Light brighter from heaven. than the sun. But it was brighter than the sun. Yes. Right? Brighter than the sun. Above the brightness of the sun. And it blinds him. Definitely. With the 12 apostles, well, the two apostles, the three apostles that are with Jesus at the Mount of Transformation or Transfiguration, they see Jesus' face shining as the sun. Paul records that he sees the brightness from heaven that outshines the sun. In one of his other accounts, he says that it outshone the noonday sun. Right? In other words, this is a brighter light. It's above the brightness of the sun. Jesus Christ came to Israel to present himself a ruler 
of an earthly kingdom to the nation of Israel. And on the day he was born, you had some miraculous things occur to show that Israel's king had arrived on planet Earth. Paul presents to the Gentiles that Jesus is the ruler of the celestials, not the earth. In Acts 16, it's a light from heaven. It's brighter than the noonday sun. It's brighter than the brightness of the sun. It shines round about Paul and those who are together with him. He goes on and he says, besides, in verse 14, besides that, all of us falling down to the earth, I hear a voice saying to me in the Hebrew vernacular, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Hard is it for you to be kicking against the goids. Now I say, who art thou, Lord? Now the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet. Is Bill still there? We lost him. He froze up for a second. To whom I am commissioning you to open their eyes to turn them about from darkness. Again. Somebody needs to tell me. <laughs> <laughs> it's not on mute. Not sure what happened. Oh, no, we've lost you for about a minute. Yeah, I'm not sure what happened there. Um, let's say uh, Expand that, okay. Start over. Let me correct this. Not sure what happened. That kind of had a little power outage and onage. <laughs> uh, Got to love technology when it does that, don't you? Yeah. But but the whole point in verse eighteen is, uh, and, and let me finish reading verse eighteen. Um, <clears throat> to open their eyes to turn them about from darkness to light and from the authority of Satan to God, for them to get a pardon of sins and allotment among those who have been hallowed by faith that is in me. In other words, this light that is brighter than the sun appears to the Apostle Paul on the Damascus Road. Again. Must have a bad chord. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Notice here. No, we didn't Notice hear you again. Can you hear me now? Yeah. Okay. We lost just what you said. Oh, I was what what happens here in verse 18 is that the apostle Paul is now being commissioned. And what's he to do? He's to go to the Gentiles. He's communicated to Jesus, who appeared to him, shining brighter 
than the son. Right? And Paul now is commissioned not to just go to the nation of Israel, but who's he going to? Gentiles. Gentiles. God's message of forgiveness is going forth to Gentiles through the Apostle Paul. Now, I want to make a note here. How do we know that God was present? There is no darkness. There's only light. Well, the only way we know is from the record of Paul, right? Yeah. And those who were with him on that Damascus road. Yeah. They didn't say anything. Right. You could hear, Paul could hear a voice. Mm-hmm. And their voice is talking to him, and Paul has a conversation with him. So that light is there, the glory that emanated at the Mount of Transfiguration is greater. The glory at the Mount of Transfor- that Transfiguration or Transformation, that light was as the sun. This is brighter than the sun. Jesus came to the nation of Israel, and his earthly ministry was for the nation of Israel. Paul here is being commissioned to go to the Gentiles and all the nations of the earth. He's on the road to Damascus going out of Israel. That's right. He's going out of Israel. The other thing that's interesting, is there a guide? Guide. Like a guide. Star. The star guided people to where Jesus was, right? Oh, and yes. The Magi. Blinded. <laughs> Paul's blinded, right? Right. Yeah. And he ends up in the house of a person by the name of Ananias, doesn't he? Who is the guide in this dispensation? Who's the what? Who is our guide in this dispensation? Is it Spirit. the glory of God going before us? Oh, yeah. Oh. No, Paul. it's the Apostle Paul himself, right? Yeah. Acts, Acts 13, 47. Thank you. And that's where I was going to go. <laughs> We're on the same page, Ted. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> Acts 13, 47 says, For thus the Lord has directed us, I have appointed thee for a light of the nations. For thee to be for salvation as far as the limits of the earth. So Paul acts as that guide today. And here's the beautiful thing. When Paul came face to face with that light that outshone the sun, did it consume Paul? No, it didn't consume consume him at all. In fact, he was able to lead a a perfectly uh, Uh, prosperous life as far as his ministry would go. The only thing the light consumed was his eyes. It consumed his eyes for a time. Yes, for a time. Right? But I think that was to show that just as Israel was blinded, 
God yeah. was now going to give light to the to the nations. I think there's there's some typology going on in there. Yes. The whole point I want to get at here is today. We don't have to have these miraculous things. God's glory doesn't have to appear to lead us to show us who God is today. It's done through the person named the Apostle Paul. The glory of God appeared at the birth of Jesus. The glory of God appeared on the Damascus Road. One glory was a glory that was pertinent to the law and the formation of a nation and a kingdom. The other glory was pertinent to the celestial realm and the formation of a body. The glory of the celestial outshone the glory of the terrestrial. Paul talks about going from glory to glory. Yes. Mm -hmm. Right? The idea is there was one glory, and that glory was the terrestrial glory, and it was a glorious thing to behold. But there's a greater glory. And that's a celestial glory. And the things that the law could not do, the grace of God can do. Right? Yes. I think a wonderful passage to me that sums up the whole distinction between these two events is in Romans 5. And in Romans 5, we we read here in Romans 5 I want to go to uh, verse 14 and 15 if somebody could read those two verses that would be wonderful Romans 5, verses 14 and 15. Do that, Bill. Okay. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that it was to come, but not as the offense, so also the free gift. For if through the offense of one, much more the grace of God, and the grace and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, has abounded unto many. The I really like the way the concordant renders this. Yeah. Um, let me let me read it here in the concordant, verse fifteen in particular. In verse fifteen, but not as the offense, thus also the grace. For if by the offense of the one, the many died. Much rather the grace of God in the gratuity in grace, which is of the one man, Jesus Christ, to the many superabounds. Now, the King James leaves out the many. It leaves out the word the. Definite article. 
Right. And the reason it leaves it out is it leaves it open-ended that it could be different people. It's not the same necessarily. Unto many. Yeah. But the many is in every manuscript. Right. You can't leave that out. That's that's an omission because it didn't fit it didn't fit the the Church of England's theology. Wow. <clears throat> the whole thing is that grace abounds. Where, where the sin and law abounded, grace does much more abound. Grace is greater. Grace outshines. Grace supersedes. Grace can accomplish what the law cannot do. The law can only condemn. That's all it can do. The law can only condemn because it is a continual reminder that you did not measure up. But grace liberates. So back in Matthew, when we read that account of the birth of Christ, we have to keep it in its proper dispensational perspective. It's an account dealing with the birth of Israel's king, and it's a glorious account. And there's certain things that are going on to show that Israel's king was now on the planet. But when the apostle Paul comes upon the scene, God does some things to show that something more miraculous was now present. What was more miraculous and more present? His offer of grace to all of humanity through his chosen vessel, the chief of sinners, who now becomes the minister and the dispenser of the grace of God, which liberates from sin. Isn't that a wonderful contrast when you start to look at it? But how many people miss these things because they're so busy trying to make themselves fit into Matthew? And when they do that, they really do a disservice to what God has given to us. God has given us something that we could sit here and talk about the grace of God and never exhaust the subject. <laughs> you know, we, we, we could spend the rest of our life talking about the grace of God and never exhaust how great the grace of God is. And that's that's something that I think, you know, we we don't appreciate it to the magnitude we should. We really don't. You know, we, we should, as Dennis said earlier, you know, I have nothing to say but to be thankful, right? <laughs> we should. Hey, Bill, <clears throat> hey, yes, Bill. In, in 1 Corinthians 15, we also see the same pattern with the uh, difference in glory and resurrected bodies. Yeah. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. You know, the glory of the terrestrial and the glory yeah. of the celestial. Yeah. And it and through Paul's epistles, there's that's a, that's a theme that runs through his epistles. Um, and you, you know, you can you can run a study on that on your own, but it's definitely there. And um, you know, I think uh, I think when we look at these passages, even though they're familiar passages. 
if we approach it with the eyes of understanding right division, it gives a far deeper and richer meaning to what God is trying to convey through the pages of his book. We want to thank you for listening to this week's Differing Things podcast. If you would like to get more information about the Bible, please check out our website, www.beacon-ministries.org. Do not forget to join us next week for a new Differing Things podcast. Thank you.